That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Yesterday, Donald Trump violated the First Amendment. The First Amendment literally says, and I quote, the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances shall not, essentially shall not be violated. That's a a quote from the First Amendment for a blasphemous photo op holding a Bible in front of the church, the the St. John's church. This is mind boggling. It was a peaceful demonstration reported by every news agency, including an Australian one. This is huge news in Australia. An Australian reporter got tear gassed and beat up. And today he's going to the shrine to St. John Paul II, a guy that Louise and I actually met and had a private audience with, who repeatedly and explicitly condemned racism. He's going to John Paul II's shrine for another photo op. What's going on here? And I think it's really important to understand exactly what's going on here and how this might play out. What's going on here is that Donald Trump learned at the knee, essentially, of Roy Cohn and Roger Stone, who were big you know, advocates of, and Roger Stone was a counselor to Richard Nixon. He is playing out Richard Nixon's law and order, and the subset of that, Southern strategy, play. It's very straightforward. This is what Nixon did in 1968, particularly after the Democratic National Convention, when the Chicago police rioted. And we're seeing now police riots across the United States. The vast majority of the violence against property is being done by protesters. Or actually, let me amend that, is being done by people who are among the protesters. The protesters are protesting. They're not, they're not destroying property. The people who are destroying property, whether it's people on the left or people on the right, they're destroying property. But the people who are harming people, the ones who are damaging people, the ones who took out an eye of a reporter, the ones who are beating people, the ones who are gassing people, the ones who are shooting rubber-coated metal bullets. And let's start calling them that, by the way. At these peaceful protesters, those are the police. We have police riots across the United States. And that's what happened in 1968. And it was very straightforward. You know, I mean, law and order were Nixon's code words for white supremacy. But back in 1968, I remember it very well. Back in 1968, the media, the mainstream media, nobody called out, nobody called out Nixon's racism. Nobody said law and order is a catchphrase for keep black people down. Nobody said that. That commentary was happening in America, but it was happening in the black press. America today is a very different place. In 1968, you did not see black faces on television unless they were villains in cop shows or unless they were buffoons in comedies. That was it. They certainly weren't news reporters, by and large. There was the occasional exception, of course, but they were the exceptions that proved the rule. In 1968, 
we were a segregated society. We had been legally a segregated society up until just three years before that. So this worked for Nixon in 68 because the press went along with it and amplified it. And nobody called out what the dog whistle was. And frankly, you know, white people in 1968, by and large, were blissfully ignorant of the consequences of their own white privilege. But white people today understand what white privilege is. And I'm going to get to that in more detail in just a minute. And that's why I believe that Donald Trump's attempt to reinvent Richard Nixon's racist law and order strategy is going to fail. And the question is, what happens when it fails? What happens when, when black and brown people say, no, you know, <laughs> we're not going to be quiet. We're not going to, we're not going to just, you know, go back home and, and shut up. We're not going to stop electing black and brown officials and Native American officials. We're going to keep moving forward. So when Trump's strategy fails, there's basically two directions this country will go. Either he will crack down and create a fully fascistic government led out of the White House by Trump and Pence and Bill Barr, who was talking to the park police in a tank just before they cleared the peaceful protesters in front of St. John's Church. By the way, cleared is a euphemism. Fired rubber-coated metal bullets at them, fired tear gas at them, beat them. Peaceful protesters. Peaceful protest is in the First Amendment. It is protected. The government may not do that. They did this so that Trump could stand in front of a church holding a Bible for a photo op because he's afraid that his support is slipping among white evangelicals. That's what the polls, uh, three days ago, a poll came out showing Trump is slipping among white evangelicals. So, ta-da! Trump's in front of a church. That was yesterday. Today, it's going to be St. Paul, John Paul II. So, number one, this could lead to essentially fascism in the United States. Or, number two... The uprisings continue. Things eventually, you know, slow down a little bit. America doesn't erupt in flames, which I think, frankly, is what Trump wants. We end up with a new president, and that new president says, I'm going to heal the nation. We're going to bring people together. We're going to reform the police, as Joe Biden said this morning in that absolutely brilliant speech he gave. In either case, no matter which way this plays out, Right now is the time for the House of Representatives, and I'm calling on Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and frankly, all the committees that were involved, Jerry Nadler and the Judiciary Committee and whatnot, I'm calling on them to reintroduce uh, or to introduce a second set of articles of impeachment, this time specifically for Trump's violation of the First Amendment for his photo op. And toss that to the Senate and give these Republicans in the Senate a second chance to make good this massive screw-up that they did just a little while ago in letting this man continue. I mean, so much for Susan Collins' argument that, oh, don't worry, he's been chastised by being impeached by the House. We don't need to throw him out of office here in the Senate. He's learned his lesson. Yes, Susan, so nice. And then, of course, you know, you've got guys like Tom Cotton and Lindsey Graham who were like, how dare you even think of kicking Trump out of office? Right. But frankly, I think that this is the time for uh, second articles of impeachment. By the way, when Trump had the uh, park police tear gas and shoot rubber-coated metal bullets at peaceful protesters in front of St. John's Church, The church looked abandoned. Well, in fact, it was not abandoned by choice. It was abandoned. The priest was kicked out, Reverend Jeannie Garbasi. He was expelled from the church along with a few other people. He says, they turned holy ground into a battleground. The right Reverend Marianne Budd, who is the Bishop of Washington, said Trump's arrival at St. John's happened without warning and left her outraged. She said the symbol of him holding a Bible as a prop, I was horrified. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 
pay attention to that too. We'll be back about white privilege. Stick around. So we have a new video up. It's over at TomHartman.com talking about language, how we use language. Language matters tremendously. And we have chosen as a society, as a culture, as media, as political leadership, etc., not to refer to people like Steve Mnuchin, who threw thousands of people out of their homes illegally during the banking crisis, as looters. Not to refer to Rex Tillerson, whose oil company has ravaged much of the third world, literally destroying people's lives, killing people, poisoning people. Uh, we don't refer to them as looters. Uh, we don't refer to the police who go into neighborhoods and kill people, minorities, uh, particularly African-Americans. We don't refer to them as looters, stealing their lives. But when black people rise up and say, no, enough, we call them looters. There's something wrong with this. Check it out. It's at TomHartman.com. So this uh, putting the knee on the carotid artery to basically cut off the blood supply to the head, which is what this cop did when he murdered George Floyd. And in the context of what's happening all across the country, I think there's the primary context, the forefront, which is mourning the murder of George Floyd and more recently Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Aubrey and others. And right across the board, you know, so many names now the, over the last decade. But there's also this context of Americans are sick and tired of being looted. And I see this increasingly becoming one whole thing. But this cutting off the blood supply to the brain by pressing on the carotid artery, this has been used in Minneapolis by Minneapolis police 237 times in the last five years, according to an NBC News analysis, 44 people went unconscious during that time, which obviously is what this cop was trying to do to George Floyd, or did do to George Floyd. And then after George Floyd was unconscious, then they checked him for a pulse. And then when there was no more pulse, so they knew he was dead, he still held his knee there for another two and a half minutes. I mean, this is just criminal beyond belief. But the point I wanted to make, the larger point, I think, is that the police, police in any community, I mean, think about this for just a minute. The Iroquois Nation, the Iroquois Confederacy, five nations in the northeastern United States, before it was the United States, to quote Ben Franklin, lived in peace for a thousand years, and yet they had no police. There were no police, there were no jails. Think about that. Native American communities all across America, no police, no jails. Cops can only function when the community gives them their approval. The people massively outnumber the police, and therefore the police can only function. There's really only two ways police can function. One is in a police state where they are so numerous and so violent and so quick to use violence that people are afraid to take them on, which is what Donald Trump is advocating right now. And the second is when the people have respect for them because they have earned that respect. And since the Reagan revolution and the hyper-militarization of our police, and those of you who are not old enough to remember what television looked like before Ronald Reagan became president, with all of a sudden, starting in 1981, all of a sudden, TV exploded with all these shows about rich people and tough cops. And you look at the shows from the 60s and 70s and the 50s, and you see average people, the Jackie Gleasons and Lucille Balls living in average homes. It wasn't Dynasty, which came along with Reagan. And you see average police like Andy of Mayberry, you know, and then post-Reagan, you know, Reagan started the process of giving surplus military equipment to the police departments, and then pretty soon it wasn't even surplus anymore. It was just a money pit for a money tree or whatever for the defense industry, for the weapons manufacturing industry. And now our police in the United States, unlike most of the rest of the world, the developed world anyway, average police, yeah, you know, yes, any, any police department anywhere in the world can field riot police and SWAT teams. 
But our average cops are looking like, in many cities, are looking like an occupying army. And, you know, nobody likes to be occupied. Without the consent of the governed, a phrase from, from the Declaration of Independence, without the consent of the governed, policing doesn't work. And frankly, I think that that, symptomatically, that's one aspect of what we're seeing right now. Donald Trump, you know, in the White House, they turned the lights off in the White House, like it was Halloween and he was out of candy. You know, instead of doing his job, he just decided to quit, went downstairs in the basement and hid. Or at least they did Friday night. He was hiding in the basement on Friday night. Presumably the same thing last night. And it's like, at what point do we say, okay, it's an illegitimate regime. Trump was not elected by the people. He was elected by an electoral college, a remnant of the era of slavery. The majority of the people did not vote for him. The majority of the people don't want him. The majority of the people are horrified by his presidency. And it's showing right now. Anyhow, we're going to have Amy Goodman in just a minute, and then I'll be picking up your calls. And the rant that I just shared with you, by the way, will be posted over on buzzflash.com and commondreams.org. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. 
Coming up on this week's Science Revolution, how do we stop authoritarians like Trump and Bolsonaro from killing more people in this pandemic? Trump and Bolsonaro, the presidents of the United States and Brazil, are essentially refusing to do anything consequential about an epidemic that is killing massive numbers of their own country's citizens. Bill Fries drops by. He's the science policy analyst with the Center for Food Safety on the newly finalized federal regulations on GMOs. And beyond nuclear's Paul Gunter also drops by on how America is unprepared for a nuclear accident during this pandemic. Find the science revolution wherever you get great podcasts. Tom Harbin here with you. Back in 2008, the Republican National Convention was going on in Minneapolis. I was sitting in an outdoor restaurant with a friend who was one of the managers of our radio station there in Minneapolis when uh, Minneapolis police chased a protester literally 30 feet from us, dragged him to the ground and started smashing his head into the ground. And then later that day, I was broadcasting live and in walked Amy Goodman along with two of her producers, Nicole Salazar and Sharif abdul Kudus. Well, let's get the story from her. Amy Goodman, the iconic, brilliant journalist, the host of Democracy Now!, author of multiple books. Amy, it's great having you back on the program. It's been a while since we've talked. I know, Your Tom. On... It's great to be with you. Thank you. Your thoughts on that day in 2008, what it said about Minneapolis and the culture of policing in that city then, and what we're seeing right now? Well, it's just unbelievable for us to be back together again, but in these unbelievably difficult times from the pandemic, the worst health crisis in a century, you didn't think it could get any worse. And then this happens in Minneapolis and uh, you have this mass uprising around the country. When I was watching CNN on Friday and seeing Omar Jimenez getting arrested by the state patrol in Minnesota as he was live broadcasting on the air on CNN, you couldn't get any more obvious than that. Of course, I couldn't help think back to 2008. It was Labor Day. It was September 1st, the first day of the Republican National Convention. It was following President Obama's, well, he wasn't president yet, but his convention in Denver. And we were covering the protests that day, and it was a beautiful blue sky day, and it was in St. Paul. I went to the convention floor. My colleagues went to the TV studio to get ready for the show the next day. They saw a protest outside, ran outside to cover it, and before I knew it, I got a call get over to 7th and Jackson because Nicole and Sharif have just been brutalized and arrested. I was shocked and I raced over there and I asked to speak to one of the commanding officers because it was a large parking lot. They had the whole area contained. If I could just get my colleagues out, fully accredited journalists holding camera and microphone. And I went up to one of the police officers and I said, can I get my colleagues out? And it wasn't seconds before he ripped me through the police line. Again, this wasn't any kind of melee. It was fully contained. They had a full cordon around the area, pulled my arms behind my back, threw me up against a car and arrested me, handcuffed me and arrested. I said, please don't arrest me. I just want to get my colleagues out. Then pushed me up against the wall onto the ground. I was looking for my colleagues, saw Sharif, demanded to be brought over. Um, the Minneapolis cop who was accompanying me, I said, could you loosen my handcuffs? I can't even feel my hands. He tightened them. So then I was brought over to Sharif and I said, what happened? They said they'd come to cover the protest. A phalanx of police officers came at Nicole as she was filming. She was shouting, press, press. They were shouting on your face. She was up against the cars. It was a parking lot. And they threw her down on her face, dragging her by the legs. So that was bloodying her face. First thing they did to was to disable her camera, which is exactly what they didn't want, which is exactly what we see these police officers all over the country are trying to stop from happening. So I was taken to the police garage where they directed cages for the arrested protesters and Nicole and Sharif were taken to jail. There was such an outcry about our arrest that finally they did release us after a number of hours. We ultimately sued. It happened in St. Paul, but it's a national security event. So the Minneapolis police were in charge. So we sued the Minneapolis police, the St. Paul police, the Ramsey County office and the Secret Service. Because right before they took me onto the bus, they ripped the credentials 
from around my neck. They ripped off my credentials and Sharif's credentials. And I said to the police, you're not allowed to do that. And they said, that's not us. It's the Secret Service. So they were all in this together. It took us three years. We got a, a landmark settlement. And part of the settlement, though, was that they would train the Minneapolis, St. Paul, Secret Service, the police to, you could never tell, and I see that now, with all of these security events, you can't tell which authorities are arresting you. It's very hard to know the level from the state troopers to the police, which township, which county. But the idea was that they would be trained to deal with the press because it's absolutely critical. You know, there's a reason why freedom of the press is enshrined in the Constitution and the First Amendment, because the media is essential to the functioning of a democratic society. Yeah. And now we're seeing this report of this young woman, uh, Linda Tirado, freelance photographer who has lost her left eye. She was shot in the face by the police in Minneapolis and left permanently blind in Atlanta. They uh, dragged two college students out of their car. These police apparently have been fired. Kate Bryan, a journalist, has been keeping a running tab over on Twitter. I got this long list here. I, I won't go through it right now because we're, we're it's just about unbelievable. Though. Yeah, the Los Angeles Times and a group of reporters, the police directly shot them in Louisville, where Breonna Taylor was killed. And she's one of the mm-hmm. uh, African-Americans who people are protesting all over the country. Police came into her house and shot her dead. So the right. Louisville reporters were out there covering the protests. And police officer with his automatic weapon just directly shot at the camera, this young reporter. And she is screaming and saying, they're shooting us. Um, there was with pepper yeah. balls. I mean, it is an intimidation tactic. And it is certainly following in the footsteps of everything that President Trump has laid out when he calls us, when he calls the media, the enemy of the American people. Right. And let us not forget the murder of George Floyd and the murder of Breonna Taylor, and the, the hunting and murder of Ahmed Arbery, and on and on and on. And what this is bringing forward is this, this very real presence of a, essentially a police state in the United States. You know, Reagan started this with this program back in the day. It's, it was called the 1033 program, where surplus military gear could be given to police departments. Obama rolled that back, and uh, Trump unrolled it back, and so far, $5.4 billion worth of military equipment has been given to police departments around the United States. Um, and this was, by the way, all done in 1990 under the rubric of the war on drugs, right? And, That's right. Uh, is it your sense that we might have hit a point here, both MSNBC and CNN certainly, and, and you with Democracy Now! and Free Speech TV, have done a really good job of documenting how the police in the last few days have have been singling out, literally singling out reporters to essentially punish them for reporting. And frankly, I think that there's an association between that and the continual demonization of the news media by Donald Trump. What are your thoughts, Amy? We have about two minutes to I mean, there's no question about that. And I think it's really important, Tom, that you centered in this story the police murder of George Floyd. Because how is it that there has been this attention paid? Certainly in the African-American community, this is not unknown. It's that the videotape was rolling. And these were just bystanders. And it seems that they are targeting anyone at this point that is documenting. Because when you see the horror of that moment with uh, Chauvin, the police officer, and the other two police officers on him from a different vantage point, you see the other two. And then one that seems to be like a standard lookout standing in front of them, stopping the bystanders from stopping this all from happening. They're just crying out, please stop. I mean, it's astounding that Chauvin sat there for almost three minutes, in addition to the five minutes of holding him down. In addition, while he was lifeless, he killed him on the spot. But we see it on videotape. It's that documentation that makes a difference. And that's why it looks like police are targeting journalists. They are documenting what's happening. And that has to be challenged. That has My to other be big concern. Yeah, my other big concern is that people who have videotaped, and there there have been at least a half a dozen instances of these, people who have filmed with their iPhones the police murders of other black people, 
have then been targeted for arrest themselves. And I'm very concerned about the 17-year-old girl who documented the murder of George Floyd. So, yeah, anyhow, that's Amy, I'm sorry. We're, 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 we are out of time, but it's a, it's, a huge, it's a huge subject. And thank you very much for dropping by. It's, it's, uh, Thanks it's, so much, Tom. Uh, yeah, good talking with you. And then the circumstances are terrible, but it's nice to hear your voice again. Uh, keep up the great work. Amy Goodman, good uh, the finest journalist working in America, in my, in my humble opinion. Amy Goodman with Democracy Now. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Here on the Tom Hartman program, the place where despair is not an option. book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. Uh, this is from the chapter, well it starts with the chapter, A Life Edit on page four. I was scared. I couldn't not be. Being scared is what anxiety is all about. The bouts are coming closer and closer. I was worried where I was heading. It seemed there was no upper limit to despair. I tried to distract myself out of it. However, I knew from past experience alcohol was off limits, so I did the thing that had helped before to climb out of a hole. The thing I forget to do in my day-to-day life. I was careful about what I ate. I did yoga. I tried to meditate. I lay on the floor and placed my hand on my stomach and inhaled deeply, in, out, in, out, and noticed the stuttery rhythm of my breath. But everything was difficult. Even choosing what to wear in the morning made me cry. It didn't matter that I had felt like this before. A sore throat doesn't become less sore simply because you've felt it before. I tried to read, but found it hard to concentrate. I listened to podcasts. I watched new Netflix shows. I went on social media. I tried to get on top of my work by replying to all my emails. I woke up and clasped my phone and prayed that whatever I could find there would take me out of myself. But, spoiler alert, it didn't work. I began to feel worse, and many of the distractions were doing nothing but driving me further to distraction. In T.S. Eliot's phrase from his four quartets, I was distracted from distraction by distraction. I would stare at an unanswered email with a feeling of dread and not be able to answer it. Then on Twitter, my go-to digital distraction of choice, I noticed my anxiety intensify. Even just passively scrolling my timeline felt like an exposure of a wound. I read news websites and other distraction, and my mind couldn't take it. The knowledge of so much suffering in the world didn't help put my pain in perspective. It just made me feel powerless and pathetic that my invisible woes were so paralyzing when there were so many visible woes in the world. My despair intensified. So I decided to do something. I disconnected. I chose not to look at social media for a few days. I put an auto-response on my emails, too. I stopped watching or reading the news. I didn't watch TV. I didn't watch my any music videos. Even magazines I avoided. During my initial breakdown years before, the bright imagery of magazines always used to linger and clog my mind with feverish racing images as I tried to sleep. I left my phone downstairs when I went to bed. I tried to get outside more. My bedside table was cluttered with a chaos of wires and technology and books I wasn't really reading. So I tidied up and took them away too. In the house, I tried to lie in darkness as much as possible, the way you might deal with a migraine. I had always, since I was first suicidally ill in my 20s, understood that getting better involved a kind of life edit, a taking away. As the minimalist advocate Fumio Sasaki put it, there's a happiness in having less. In the early days of my first experience of panic, the only things I had taken away were booze and cigarettes and strong coffees. Now, though, years later, I realized that a more general overload was the problem, a life overload, and certainly a technology overload. The only real technology I interacted with during this present recovery, aside from the car and the cooker, were yoga videos on YouTube, which I watched with the brightness turned low. The anxiety didn't miraculously disappear, of course not. Unlike my smartphone, there is no slide-to-power-off function for anxiety. But I stopped feeling worse. I plateaued. And after a few days, things began to calm. The familiar path of recovery arrived sooner rather than later. And abstaining from stimulants, not just alcohol and caffeine, but these other things, was part of the process. I began, in short, to feel free again. Most people know the modern world can have physical effects. That despite advances, aspects of modern life are dangerous for our bodies. Car accidents, smoking, air pollution, a sofa-dwelling lifestyle, take out pizza, radiation, that fourth glass of Merlot. 
Even being at a laptop can pose physical dangers. Sitting down all day, getting an RSI. Once I was even told by an optician that my eye infection and blocked tear ducts were caused by staring at the screen. We blink less, apparently, when working on a computer. So as physical health and mental health are intertwined, couldn't the same be said about the modern world and our mental states? Couldn't aspects of how we live in the modern world be responsible for how we feel in the modern world? Not just in terms of the stuff of modern life, but its values, too. The values that cause us to want more than we have, to worship, work above play, to compare the worst bits of ourselves with the best bits of other people, to feel like we always lack something. And as I grew better day by day, I began to have an idea about a book. This book right here. I've already written about my mental health and reasons to stay alive, but the question now was not why should I stay alive? The question this time was a broader one. How can we live in a mad world without ourselves going mad? As I began researching, I quickly found some attention-grabbing headlines for an attention-grabbing age. Of course, news is almost always designed to stress us out. If it was designed to keep us calm, it wouldn't be news. It would be yoga or a puppy. So there's an irony about news companies reporting on anxiety while also making us feel anxious. Anyway, here are some of the headlines. Stress and social media fuel mental health crisis among girls from The Guardian. Chronic loneliness is a modern-day epidemic from Forbes. Facebook may make you miserable, says Facebook Sky News. Steep rise in self-harm among teenagers from the BBC. As I said, it's ironic that reading the news about how things are making us anxious and depressed actually can make us anxious. And that tells us as much as the headlines themselves. Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. What a day. What a day. Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, what's up? Oh, I love Amy. I'm glad you hit her on. And Tom, can you please write a speech for Biden right now? I love your beginning. You're brilliant. And then well, I that'll, want... That'll be published over on, on Common Dreams and uh, BuzzFlash.com. Biden needs to get that stuff out there. Yeah. That's why I love watching you. And then I wanted to say I saw the strangest thing last night. It was so absurd, the coverage on ABC News. It was after 1030. There was a group of very small protesters, about 20. And the cops uh, numbered them um, three to one, maybe four. Maybe even more. They had everything. They had the SWAT, everybody there. But they had these two police officers with the German Shepherds, too. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Okay, the protesters, I got to say, were very wise in Chicago. They gave them three warnings to disperse. And I think it was late at night, and so... They did. They just left. They got out of there after the third warning. They had brought the paddy wagons in, too. But then what happened was crazy. There was, it looked like an elderly black man. He was just in a T-shirt and pants walking very slowly. And I honestly think he may have been homeless. But they go up to him with the dog, and they tell him, the dog will bite you. Move faster. And they follow him with the dog, and they go, You've got to go faster. The dog will bite you. And I was like, what the heck? But then they left him alone after a bicyclist went through the intersection. And then they followed him with the dog. And they said, the dog will bite you. we got to get out of here. And the guy's just bike riding. And he, something happened where he fell off his bike. And it wasn't because of the dog. The dog wasn't close enough. But they go up even closer, and they still say, the dog will bite you. And I'm like, this is crazy. They had nothing to do. There were so many of them there, and they have to harass these poor people. So they Well, this is, the, this is the problem with people who go into policing specifically because it gives them power over other people. Mm-hmm. And I'm so sorry about Amy, Amy's experiences with those police. Uh, that's the scary part. The press deserves to report this stuff. Yeah, but she's, mean, at least she's still alive and she still has her eyes. I mean, you know, I don't think that we've had any journalists killed so far, but certainly what precipitated all this, the murder of George Floyd, is the most recent in a long, long line of police killings going back centuries in this country. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, think, I think, frankly, Americans right across the board, Americans of all stripes, these are, you know, you look at the, at the crowds, uh, you know, the, there are people of all races, all mm -hmm. ages, you know, you know, all genders. I mean, it's, it, people are showing up. We the people, 
are showing up and saying, no, we've had enough. This, this is not how it's supposed to play out. This is not legitimate. And this administration is not legitimate, frankly. And it and scares Trump so badly. He did hide in his bunker. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jessica, thanks for the call. Great to hear from you. Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Tom Harbin here with you. Glenda in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, Glenda, what's up? What's on your mind today? Well, talking about the race massacre here in Tulsa in uh, 1921, back in the 1980s, I met a survivor of the massacre. Her mother, she and her siblings, she was around 12 at the time, walked following the railroad track. when When the riot started, the massacre began. They walked from the Greenwood area to a small town north of Tulsa following the railroad tracks. Their father stayed behind. He was a businessman. He had a business. They had a home. Stayed behind to take care of things. They were in Collinsville for a couple of three days, and then they walked back to Tulsa. Their father had been murdered. The business had been destroyed, burned to the ground, and so had their home. So they were a family who lost everything. When I met her, she was, I met her in the 1980s, she was an elderly woman. 
but her story made me cry. So I just thought I would share that. It's a personal experience. Yeah, who can imagine? It's Well, I guess we can all imagine, but it's like, you know, for white people in America, this is an alien reality by and large. For black people in America, oh yeah, of course, you know, that's what happened. I, it's just, we have to fix this. We have to fix this. But Glenda, thank you for sharing that story. Carolyn in Lake Isabel, California. Hey, Carolyn, what's on your mind? Hello. Yes, I'm calling because I'm 80 years old. I was shocked to hear about the Tulsa massacre. It is unreal. That, uh, Isn't it amazing that it's not taught in our schools? Oh, my God. I just, they told me to try to get my words together, but my father worked for an oil company when I was young, and we lived in all of those states up Texas, Oklahoma, up to the Dakotas, and I went to school there, and all of, all of that. Never once did I ever hear about this, about the massacre, and... It made me cry that, uh, you know, okay, people then, you know, they were working for a living and you did this and that and you accepted it as truth, what you read in school and what your parents, my parents were not biased, so I never heard any of this at home, but I just, I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. I'm still shocked. You know, and, and that's when I voted for Obama, I thought, Okay, well, he's going to be able to do more because he's got his thoughts and thoughts from all of his growing up experiences that we would have a better way. And here we are. I've been home at my house for three months, not with any humans except the person that delivers my meals. And I, I, the last I was thinking was the pickup truck with the guys killing a man in the street, shooting them. And then I hear about this, and then we have these, uh, what's going on now. Oh, my goodness. It's just, how does this happen? I mean, yeah. Well, just- Carolyn, what you, are, what you are demonstrating is, in your shock, is, I think, a really important phenomenon, which has largely come about in the last decade as a result of technology, of, of cell phones that have cameras in them and, and are connected to the Internet wirelessly. And that is that all of a sudden, relatively speaking, white people in America are starting to realize in their gut, you know, as a, as a real thing, what the actual life experience of black people in this country has been like for 400 years and continues to be. Literally, you know, I, you know I've ranted about this in the past, you know, the, the white privilege, the essence of white privilege isn't you know, of, of course, there's things, you know, like jobs and economics and whatnot, but it's, it's literally being white means you can walk out of your house and not worry that the color of your skin is going to cause you to get attacked. It means that you can walk through a store and not be followed. It means that you can walk into a restaurant and not get a crappy place to sit. It means that you will be treated as a human being rather than, rather than something less than a human being. And of course, you know, it means, generally speaking, that violence is not visited upon you the way it is upon black people. And I think that we may be at a turning point in the United States. I hope we are at a turning point. It seems that this concatenation of the virus and Trump's horrible response to it and the increasingly visible police murders and other, you know, and harassment, just, you know, Amy Cooper in, in New York, you know, with Mr. Cooper, I, I'm forgetting his first name, you know, I'm going to call the police on you. I mean, just all of this stuff. It's, I think America is starting to wake up, I hope. You're listening to Tom Hartman. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I wanted to say I remember the Republican convention here, you know, when Amy Goodman was here. And I also remember she did a story about a paid provocateur. The only violence that happened was like two or three people that were egged on by a paid provocateur that had, I believe, some connection with the national security, NSA. and Paid by whom? Paid by the federal government, ultimately. So a provocateur who was an employee of the federal government, you mean? Well, he was a contracted, apparently. He did this as a, a, you know, for a living. I believe it was. Contracted it, specifically to disrupt a demonstration? 
he wasn't there to disrupt it. He was there to make it violent. You know, he was egging on a bunch of young people who they convicted. Nothing happened to him at all. You can talk to her. I think it's probably, uh, you know, recorded. She has a record of it because I remember watching the broadcast. Now, you know, since 9-11, we have a militarized police, and we live now almost to the point where we live under a fascist regime. The Republican Party are at war with people like us. They don't like us. They don't like Minneapolis. And I think even though, you know, some of the violence and arson and looting happened in those neighborhoods by people that live there, a good portion of the violence was perpetrated by outside people, and it was recorded. They weren't black, brown, or American Indian people that lived yeah, in the that first, neighborhood. The first building that got smashed, the windows got smashed out of an auto parts store, it's on camera, was a white guy with a black umbrella. And only the right. police at the time knew that there was a Predator drone flying above. And of course, the umbrella protesters in Hong Kong use umbrellas to keep the drones from identifying them. And, uh, you know, he was later confronted by a black protester and he just, you know, turned and walked away. And, you know, people in uh, Minneapolis are suggesting, well, you live in Minneapolis, are suggesting that he's a cop. I don't know that he is or not. I'm not sure he's been definitely identified, so I don't want to toss a name He is not a cop. They know that. But, you know, they need to uh, go after these people because I think it will be really interesting to find out possibly that these people are paid provocateurs by who knows what organizations that do this. I mean, where do they find the time to go from city to city with guns and whatnot? And how do they fund themselves? That's what I think is really, you know, needs to be looked into. But I think that it would be really interesting because I think there's a whole chain that you could probably follow back to the other party, the Republican Party, which is a faction that doesn't care, you know, if even the state has proper PPE, has, you know, testing equipment, that they requisition it for themselves. You know, they have right. a protective gear for themselves. The people, you know, the, the riot police and, and gear for, you know, the, the police department. But not for us. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you. John, thank you for the call. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that Chief Justice John Roberts, back when he worked for Ronald Reagan, came up with a way that Congress and the White House could get around the Supreme Court? Specifically, they were trying to blow up uh, Roe v. Wade and Brown v. Board, but it could be used by Democrats right now. It's fascinating. It's in my new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Check it out. Thanks so much. the Tom Hartman program, Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? I wanted to let you know that you had mentioned uh, reforming the police, but you cannot reform the police, which comes from the word policy, as you know, unless you reform his story. You can't reform the police until you reform history, Tom. That's the bottom line. And when you speak of police cars and people a certain age refer to police cars as black and whites. You think that that's yeah. some type of uh, coincidence? It is not. This country, you spoke of looting, the country itself was looted. So let's be honest, because I already see this going nowhere. This whole, once again, a discussion on race. You know, I had a Romanian friend who told me once, she said in a very thick Transylvanian accent, the future is known it is certain it is past that is always changing now you had an 80 year old woman god bless her who said she did not know about the greenwood massacre i wrote an article in fact the first and only article i had nationally syndicated in fact you congratulated me for it god bless you two years ago called the black death it can be found over at oen up at noon and Greenwood, the Black Wall Street, and now all of a sudden people are uncovering this. I'm in my late 50s. I've been knowing about it for years. That's what I'm talking about, the history. The history has to change. 
Why is this news right. to people? Well, that's the thing, the Kenyatta, you're African-American. I mean, the, the Greenwood is, I'm assuming, well-known to African-Americans across the country. It is invisible to white people. That's my whole point, Tom. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm agreeing with you. Okay, now, now let me say this to you about Greenwood, because this is really important. Greenwood was special because there were many, many massacres in the early 18th and 19th centuries of black people in black towns. Rosewood, Opelousas, I could go on and on. But Greenwood, not only because those black people were so wealthy, but let me tell you why it's so unique. It is the first time that aerial bombs were dropped on civilians in the United States. It's only happened wow. three times. It's the, it's I remember uh, Philadelphia, times. you know. Philadelphia moved. Wait, what? That's what I'm yeah, telling you. Project move. The, the only yeah. the only times it's ever happened have been against black people and whoever's going to call you after I'm off and say, well, what about Pearl Harbor? Pearl Harbor was not a state at the time; it was trust territory. The only well, it was also not the United States bombing bombing its own cities. This is what I'm telling you. It's only happened twice in this country, and it's been against black people. There's a parable there. Now, I want to say something real quick about the insult, the three deaths, the three deaths. You see, and I'm so glad you did this today, Tom. I'm so glad you're the first person, major person in the media to say that this isn't about George Floyd. This is about Breonna Taylor. This is about Emmett Keel. This is about Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Oscar Grant. That's what this is about. And it keeps happening. The only time there's ever civil insurrection in this country by black people is because of police abuse. Every time. Every time. And the insult has already started. You see, killing George, that's the first killing, to kill the body. Then the second killing is to assassinate his character. Story's already out. Oh, he had an armed robbery conviction. See, because right. that then says, well, his life was worthless. And then the third killing, and they're already setting this up, is to demoralize black people because charging this guy with third-degree murder, and I'm going to tell you why it's first-degree murder. First of all, he knew his victim. And when George kept saying, he kept saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, he said repeatedly more significantly important words, and that was, don't kill me. And now that I think about that and I look at that video, he's telling some guy he knows don't kill me. I'm almost willing to bet that this was a hit. Oh, those two guys worked together for 17 years as bouncers at a club. That's what I'm talking about. He knew his victim just like Amber Geiger knew hers. Lastly, I want to say this to you, Tom, if I can. One of the proudest days of my life was in 1992 during the riots. I had to traverse from Anaheim to where I lived in Culver City. The place was on fire about noon. You know, my supervisor said, hey, look, you guys are out of here. Got Was on this when you were a cop? No, 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 no. Okay. Way after, way after. No, I'm in private industry. working for a software company. And, uh, but we were in Anaheim in Orange County. And, you know, people got scared once that verdict came down. But again, about Rodney King, it was about Latasha Harlan. That's what lit the fuse. But anyways, I get where I'm going. Get off the freeway. I'm meandering. I end up at Florence in Normandy, and there's this red truck there. And I'm going like, wow, that's weird. This is it's just busted out and everything. I would later find out that that's where Reginald Denny had just gotten beaten. They had taken him away by that time. Mm. I managed to get to Culver City. And when I got to Culver City, there was a checkpoint. I'm about three blocks from the house. And there's this very young Culver City police officer who draws down on me with an M16 as I get to the checkpoint. And I guess I surprised him because when he drew down on me, I was just incensed at that point. I opened the door and I said, what are you going to do? You're going to shoot me? And at that point in time, I did not see the contingent of cars behind me. But all of these brothers, black men, they got out of the car and they said, and words I can't say on the air, yeah, uh, expletive. What, you're going to kill us all? You're going to kill us all? And at that point, the sergeant came over and told him to shoulder that weapon, and we went on. And that's the day I felt like white people must feel every day. Yeah, I got it. Kenyatta, thank you. It's always good to hear from you. And, and keep up all the right. great writing. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman Program. Your media support group for We the People. Listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Today in the Tom Harvin Book Club, we're featuring The Inner Level by Richards Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. It's a new book. The subtitle is How More Equal Societies 
reduce stress, restore sanity, and improve everyone's well-being. This is in Chapter 6, The Misconception of Meritocracy, page 161. Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London who became foreign secretary in Theresa May's conservative government in 2016, was educated at Eton and Oxford. Giving the Margaret Thatcher lecture to a think tank in 2013, he articulated the view that economic equality will never be possible because some people are simply too stupid to catch up with the rest of society. Quote, whatever you may think of the value of IQ tests, it is surely relevant to a conversation about equality that as many as 16% of our species have an IQ below 85. Comparing society to a box of cornflakes, he praised inequality for creating the conditions under which the brightest triumph. Quote, the harder you shake the pack, the easier it will be for some cornflakes to get to the top, end quote. Inequality, quote, is essential for the spirit of envy and keeping up with the Joneses that is, like greed, a valuable spur to economic activity. Whether or not Johnson is quite as clever a cornflake as he presumably likes to think, he certainly is not in command of the facts. Nobel Prize winning economists, as well as the OECD and IMF, have shown how inequality, far from spurring on economic growth, leads to stagnation and instability. Social mobility is reduced where income inequality is greatest and far from inspiring innovation. It turns out that there are actually slightly more patents granted per head of population in more equal countries. And as we've seen in the previous chapters, there's also the undeniable human cost of our fixation with keeping up with the Joneses. But Boris is far from alone in his misconceptions about the relationships between inequality and ability. The idea that people are naturally endowed with differences in ability, intelligence, or talent, and that those differences then determine how far up the social ladder they reach, is a powerful popular justification for social hierarchy. The presumption is that we live in a meritocracy in which the key to status is ability. We think of society as shaped like a pyramid. The supposition is that most people are near the bottom or only a little above it because the bulk of the population lack the special talents that we imagine people need to get to the top. The belief that differences in ability are the main influence on where people end up on the social ladder is so strong that we tend to judge everyone's personal worth, ability, and intelligence by their position in society. Nor is this confined simply to how we judge others. It also affects how people see themselves. Those at the top often believe that they're there because they are naturally endowed with plenty of the right stuff just as many of those near the bottom think that their low status reflects a lack of ability. That picture, however, is not supported by the latest scientific evidence. First, research now shows that a very major part of what happens to people and where they end up is the result of totally unpredictable influences and occurrences amounting to pure luck. Second, aside from luck, the most important links that exist between ability and status operate in the opposite direction of that imagined by most people. Rather than different endowments of talents determining position in the hierarchy, it's much nearer the truth to say that position in the hierarchy determines abilities, interests, and talents. But let's address luck first. Whether or not we consider ourselves successful, most of us can probably look back across our own life histories and recognize the roles that luck and chance have played in getting us to where we are. We're perhaps lucky with schools or teachers, with the questions on an important exam, with some nameless person dealing with university applications, or we got on well with an interviewer when applying for a job. Perhaps a chance meeting was important, or perhaps an opportunity for promotion came up unexpectedly. Finding a life partner is just as important for our quality of life as our career or income, but we are far happier to acknowledge that chance and luck played a key role in meeting that person than we are in acknowledging luck's role in our career. No one minds mentioning the chance meeting, the circumstances that put you both at ease with each other, or the shared interest that might easily have gone unrecognized. The role of chance makes people's lives highly unpredictable. Although there are huge social class biases and social mobility, there are at the same time vast numbers of people moving up or down the social ladder in ways that even the most detailed analysis of parenting and ability fail to predict. Similarly, although there are differences of perhaps 10 years in the average life expectancy of upper and lower social classes, that explains very little of the individual differences in how long people live. Inevitably, some rich people will die young and some people live in poverty to a great age. And as some public health mavericks used to say, even if you exercised, ate healthy, and didn't smoke, your most likely cause of death was still heart disease. In addition to all this, there may be a large element of chance in whatever our experiences, including subjective experiences, 
trigger the kind of epigenetic changes affecting subsequent development that we discussed in the last chapter. Just as the development of weather systems is sometimes said to be so chaotic it can be changed by the flapping of a butterfly's wings, so what amounts to chance events at the social or the cellular level are now thought to play a very substantial part in our lives. So much so, the scientists have worried that if random chance and luck are such important determinants of whether or not an individual becomes sick, gets good exam results, or has a good marriage, it becomes difficult to understand causal pathways at all. The book The Inner Level by Wilkinson and Pickett. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 